Hello, my beloved fellow humans. Welcome to Outspoken. I'm your host, Justin White. This is episode 77. And these are strange times we're living in, are they not? Uh, I hope that you're all taking care of yourselves and each other and doing your part to keep everyone safe. Um, give our healthcare workers a chance to keep up, catch up. I want to express my gratitude to them and to anyone who's out there going the extra mile to help one another. I think it's necessary these days. Um, Obviously, certain people in positions of power are doing nothing to help. And in fact, they're doing lots to hurt. So it's up to us. We have to stick together and be kind and compassionate and work hard to uh, take care of business. So um, I, in addition to all the recommended things that we're supposed to be doing, uh, you've probably also seen some other ideas about how to stay sane and protected at at the same time. Uh, My suggestion is to reach out to anybody who's in need Uh, There may be some elderly folks in your neighborhood or in your family who are afraid to go out and maybe they need some groceries or some fucking toilet paper if it's not all gone. Um, So maybe help them out. Go make a run to the store if you're well and feel safe doing so. Uh, What else? Uh, The schools are shut down now at least in my city, but a lot of cities, I think. And the in San Francisco, the libraries and the Park and Recreation Department are opening up sites to help feed children who don't have a way to get food otherwise outside of school. And uh, they're, off, they're offering uh, free childcare as well. So look out for things like that and spread the word if you can. Uh, be nice to each other. Don't hoard share. It's better. Sharing is better. Um, Support all the small businesses that you can. One idea that I saw was to buy gift certificates now in order to give these people an influx of cash and then use them later when things have settled down. Uh, Also, think of the artists and musicians and all the people who make their living uh, from home or from wherever, but don't have a way to do that if people aren't supporting them. Uh, And I'm sure you've seen lots of other great ideas, but just try to help each other. That's the main message here from me anyway. I know that we can and will get through this, but uh, let's try to do it together as much as we can. It's not very heartening to see people fighting over butt wiping materials, but um, I think that it's possible that we're going to learn from this and come out of it better in the end. Uh, Okay, so my guest today is my good friend Paul. Uh, We've known each other for about 40 years. I believe I was in first grade and he was in kindergarten when we met. So that's crazy. Um, And he lives close by, but we don't see each other very much which is a sad tale that I tell often uh, because I am a recluse. Uh, But anyway, I was really happy to get to talk to him 
at length about what he's been up to for the last long time. And he's a lovely, lovely human. I'm really happy to know him. And uh, we will get to our conversation just after I try to convince you that a bowl of pistachio shells can be a percussion instrument. You you were recently in Brazil, right? I was recently in Brazil, yeah. Are you still uh, investigating that Barry whose name I can't remember? Yeah, um, Ungurawi. All right. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> and it's... Yeah, that's an f- interesting story, although I probably don't want to get... Um, there's parts of it I probably won't want to talk about, but um, just because it involves like conflicts with, with f- friends of mine. Okay. Um, can you say what it is you're doing or no? Yeah, 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 for sure. No, I can tell you everything about it. I won't, I won't just, I won't go into the conflicts. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I like conflict. I know it would be a good story, but, um, I wouldn't want it. What if one of them or both of them listened to one of these days and they would, you know. No, we don't want to drum up drama. No, there was already too much drama. So that's, that's why I had to kind of step back. But, um, the project itself is really interesting. It's about, um. Well, it starts with my friend, um, Tarek, who's, um, I met, uh, I guess I met him in Utah for the first time when I was going to grad school there. He's from Berkeley, California, and his mom's a professor in anthropology. And um, he was studying in Venezuela in the um, middle of nowhere in the Amazon basin in Venezuela called the the Cowra River. And in, in an indigenous community. Um, what was he studying? He was studying... Uh, seed dispersal by animals. So, um, I think, I think he was interested in, uh, I think rodents. Um, but he was climbing into trees and doing observations at night, um, of, I think seeds, he probably set out seeds and then he was observing like who, who where took they them. wound up. Yeah. Like which animals came out and took them or That's cool. um, things like that. Did he have like night vision? Yeah, he probably had some night vision goggles. But the reason this becomes important is because um, he grew up in Berkeley and he would go um, rock climbing, you know, any any chance he got. And so he'd go, I think he probably started just around the East Bay and then eventually getting to Yosemite where all rock climbers go and ended up becoming a really good rock climber and, you know, meeting a lot of the people who are... I guess mildly famous now. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And, um, so learning a lot of techniques about ropes and, and so when he decided he needed to climb trees and I, I, I wish I could remember, but I can't remember exactly why he needed to climb trees for his PhD research, but something about observing uh, animals and seed dispersal. Um, he used that, that gear to, to, um, well, the techniques he used with harnesses and carabiners and okay. helped him just climb trees. And um, in these villages, which are pretty traditional villages, um, with some exceptions, like in Venezuela, you know, the price of oil is so low, or well, at least until recently, right? Um, that uh, very strange kinds of economies would spring up where people who were desperately poor would still have like the biggest boats and <laughs> would just burn gasoline like gas you know, they no problem. Cause so, they, Venezuela had like the biggest reserve on earth. Right? Yeah. I, well, I, I think so. I mean, I think, I think they were 
up there with the Saudis. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think. But um, back to the story. Um, these people, these indigenous communities, I think they're, they're called the Sanima. Um, they live very traditionally. They ate um, a lot of, you know, wild forest products. They um, did a lot of fishing, you know, hunting wild game. And one of the wild wild forest products that are really common and important in, in well, just not only the Sanima in Venezuela, but all throughout the Amazon are these, these palm trees that are, um, there's a, a variety of different ones that different species and many of them produce fruits that are really nutritious. Um, uh, there's a couple of them that have a really high uh, fat content, um, which is really important for, mm -hmm. yeah, forest dwelling people. Some other proteins, like yeah. dependable protein. Mm -hmm. And the, yeah, the, one of these species has complete protein. So mm -hmm. the one that actually we we're working with, um, to this day, that one, Ungurawi, mm -hmm. yeah, that's how they call it in Peru, um, has complete protein. So if you're a vegan, you could subsist on these fruits and not need any other protein. You probably eat a lot of them, but yeah. um, there's a tribe in, in Ecuador that's a nomadic tribe that um, they have a coming-of-age ceremony for uh, young adults, and they make them, I think, go out in the forest for a month or two months, and that, uh -huh. that's the only thing they can eat. Really? Yeah. For two months? A yeah. month or two? Yeah, it's just uh, these crap. palm fruits. So. What do they look like? Are they, are they like, like dates or um, They're smaller. They're like, uh, they're purple generally on, uh, and um, kind of the size of an olive. Okay. Maybe a little bigger. But what about do they the taste size like? Have you ever had acai? I don't know if I have raw, I mean, I've had drinks made from it. Yeah. I don't know if I've had the actual berry. The flavor is kind of... Um, it's, it has like a blueberry kind of that, that sort of, um, tang, mm -hmm. um, not like a vitamin C flavor, but that astringency that kind of, um, I don't know, it has oh. a lot of, you can taste the, the fiber and the, the kind of the plant juices. I don't even know okay. the, the word, but, yeah. um, so it doesn't have a very strong, it has a, a fragrant flavor. It kind of smells, it's, I don't know, floral. It has a kind of a floral taste. Okay. And then there's a lot of fat. Um, so what people do is, um, they collect the fruits and they have a hard shell and then they have a huge seed. And then there's an oil rich, um, fruit layer of, of fruit, I guess, between the seed and the hard shell. Okay. So it's not easy to eat. Like you can pick one off the tree and you can put it in your mouth, but you have to kind of suck on it for a while and let it get warm. And then, and then the shell of this, of the fruit dissolves a little bit and you can kind of, um, kind of spit out the shell a little bit and get a little bit of the oil. Okay. But generally what people do is that's a pain. So yeah, <laughs> they take a big bunch of them they soak them in warm water and then they pound it with a, like a big mortar and, mortar pestle. and pestle, but okay. a big one, like a big wooden bowl and a big wooden thing. And, um, and it ends up making this like really, and then they filter it and then you get like this kind of frothy milk Okay. that is sort of like almond milk actually, but I think it tastes a lot better and the texture is a lot more like cow's milk. Okay. Um, and it's, it's nice. It's a nice beverage. People add stuff to it. You can add sugar or, um, you know, we've been experimenting. You can add lots of things to it. Tang? <laughs> no, not tang. You can't add tang. Well, it'd be like, would you add tang to milk? I mean, I guess people did. Absolutely Orange not. Julius. <laughs> That's right. Orange Julius did it. So why not? All right. So um, people collect these fruits, right? And what he noticed was the way that they would collect them um, off these palm trees is they take like a old piece of rope basically um, and 
tire like around their feet and kind of use it as a brace and then with great strength pull themselves up these these trunks and these trees can be really big they can be like 50 feet tall wow and so you have to be strong it's often raining of course in the rainforest so Mm -hmm. slippery um there can be vines or you know they're barefoot i imagine yeah barefoot to get like grip on the tree yeah um and then they you kind of have to carry a machete with you so you can cut these um stalks of fruits they're really heavy right um and that's how they collect the tree um excuse me that's how they collect the fruit um so only a few people could do this they have to be strong um and then i think the technique of climbing like a lot of people are just kind of like not learning how to do it yeah and then with machetes you know you can cut down one of these trees in probably like i don't know a few minutes right so you gotta be careful um, if you're climbing it's easier just to cut the tree down often than just climbing up to get the fruit, even oh, though really? these fruit, they, do these tre- they did, oh, they do do this. And these trees can last for, you know, probably 50, hundred years, produce fruit, you know, at least once a year. They're a chopping down adult trees just yeah. to get one batch of berries. Yeah. That sucks. Um, so. Where's the Lorax when you need Exactly. It? So this is my friend Tarek, the Lorax. Okay. He, um, he adapts, uh, some of his climbing gear and his know-how. Um, and, and invents this like system to climb that's based on things that other people do, but it's, it really works for palm trees, especially. Cool. And it's like two, uh, stiff cords of rope and then attached to a harness, a carabiner, and then stirrups to your legs. And then it's basically, you can just walk up the tree. I feel like I've seen that in action. Yeah. That's, it's really cool. And then he taught other people. Yeah. It takes a little bit of training, but you know, in a, in an afternoon you can be trained on how to do it. And people, everyone loves it. Like, it doesn't matter if you're a kid, an old person. Um, it's fun to just walk up a palm tree. Yeah. And um, so he, he uh, to drum up, like, excitement, um, he organized, like, a competition between one in one of these indigenous communities and, like, the neighboring one. And they had, like, races to see who could climb the trees faster. And um, so it was a big, it was a big success and he kept, keeps, he's a tinker. He loves to invent stuff. So he keeps making it better. keeps modifying it. And, um, when I was talking to him about my work in Peru, this is a really big deal in Peru, like, because, um, there are other species of palms that people eat there that are actually really common in the city. Um, it's a different species that it doesn't have as much, um, protein, but it has a lot of vitamin E and it's also has a lot of healthy fats. It's called aguaje. And if you walk through the city, and this is a city of like 500,000 people, during most of the year, you'll um, people will be sitting on the street corners selling these fruits. And people, they look like, um, they're kind of big. They look like avocados, but they have um, scales okay. on them. And so you have to kind of get the scales off, mm-hmm. and then you can eat them. And in which can, city is this? Iquitos, Peru. Okay. Yeah. And, um, but people there also, like those trees are even bigger, and they're, um, more difficult to climb and people just chop, chop them down. Mm-hmm. Like there's no tomorrow. And and one of the reasons is because a lot of the areas in, in Peru, especially it's, it's not like a lot of the forest doesn't really belong to anyone. It doesn't, it belongs to the government, I guess. And but they're not um, guarding it or anything. They're not guarding it. And then the people that actually live nearby, they, they don't have title to their lands. They're, they're just, they live there. Um, but the bureaucracy it takes to actually like plot out like who, which part of the land belongs to whom is, it's just too much of a bar for people who are, you know, earning like a dollar a day. Right. Um, so 
if the land doesn't belong to anybody and there's, you find a bunch of palm trees that has fruit that you can sell for a couple bucks. Well, why not yeah. cut them down? Go get them. And these palms, uh, this particular species, the aguaje, there's male and female trees. So only the female trees produce fruit. And so you have a whole forest of palm trees that now only have male trees. Mm. <laughs> so, um, and will it eventually, will they eventually just die off? They'll they just don't... change sex. Oh, they do. No, no, I'm just kidding. Because something <laughs> frogs can do that. Um, yeah, I don't. They might be able to. I, I, I don't. I don't know. They, they will. Um, they'll just die. Um, eventually. Um, yeah, probably a next generation of you know trees will grow up and replace them, and they'll be back to an Some even sex females. ratio. Yeah. But those won't those just get chopped down too? They will, but not anymore because there's all this palm climbing gear that's available. Okay. <laughs> so your friend Tarek, yeah, he invented and and dispersed. Yeah, so this. he came to Peru, and and there's there's also that same species, the ungurawi, that that, mm-hmm. in, that people like also in Iquitos. Not it's not as big of a deal in the city, but people in the countryside around the city use it, um, you know, consume it. Um, so. We, you know, he, he brought the gear, he trained people how to use it. People really liked it. Uh, we did a little fundraiser once and earned, I don't know, it was a, one of those like kick, not Kickstarter, but the oh, Indiegogo, something like that. Indiegogo, yeah. And we raised like almost $10,000 and we bought gear and then we went down to Peru and trained a bunch of communities to know how to use it and people loved it. That's awesome. So that's, And then you gave the gear, the gear to those communities to keep? Yeah. Nice. And then we thought, well... What would be really cool is if the fruits that they gathered would have a market value that they could, that would be, you know, they could earn more money uh, collecting fruit um, in a sustainable way than they would, you know, by chopping down the rainforest and, you know, planting yucca or yeah, um, a lot of palm oil. Well, tree, they, palm trees. there's some, there's some palm oil, but in that area, it's mostly um, cutting down forests for planting yucca. Or just cutting down forests for trees and selling the trees for, you know, um, beams, mm. or um, even just, just making turning them into char- carbon uh, uh, charcoal. Oh my god! Yeah, and just and for a few bucks, you know, for grazing cattle too. Does, In that, that area, a there's, there's not so much ca- cattle because um, you can't drive to Iquitos. You can only fly okay, there, or you can take a boat city. there. Okay. Um, so it, there are some. There is some cattle, but mostly it's chickens. People raise chickens there. Okay. Yeah, and fish. They have some fish farms, but there's a lot of wild fish caught. So that's that was the whole idea of this enterprise. Was well, first we thought um, it'd be fun to just have like a conservation project where we, you know, wrote grants to conservation organizations and they would pay us to make gear and train people to climb palm trees. But we just couldn't. We just had no success doing that. Like uh, it, it, like for conservation grants, it seemed like. There was a million of them that would give you like a thousand dollars, and then there was a bunch that would give you like a million dollars. Nothing in the middle, and okay. like nobody wanted to give us a million dollars because to to get a million dollar grant, you had to be, have like a track record, and right. um, uh, you have to have a real organ- like a big organization. But you need more like fifty grand, or yeah, like that would have like been that. perfect, or you know, a couple hundred grand to yeah. kind of keep it get it growing. But so we thought, well, what if we made a business and we we collected this fruit and um tried to you know people already consume it in iquitos maybe we could sell it maybe we could export it to the u.s and that Mm -hmm. that was the idea but and that idea i still think is is great because um you know anyone that tries this 
they like it. Mm-hmm. Um, you can mix it with acai. It's delicious. Um, it's nutritious. It's how does yeah. it measure up to Orange Julius? <laughs> it's, it's it measures it's up better. Yeah, I mean you can mix it with coffee and chocolate and um, yeah. So there is a market for it, or you believe that there would be? Yeah, but there isn't really a market for it, right? It's a, it's a product that nobody knows the name of it. Yeah, um, there's no real demand for it. So that's that's a big challenge, actually, is starting a business. Well, first starting a business when you don't really have any money. Yeah. And then trying to sell a product that has no demand. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds challenging. And then, um, I shouldn't say this too, but me and Tarek and um, the other guy that, Itala, who's intimately involved in this, my close friend in, in Peru, uh, none of us are, you know, Business good. types. No, no. And none of us really care about making money. So right. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Three strikes. <laughs> But but you do have big hearts and a desire to do something cool yeah, and that's worthwhile. That's the dream. The dream is that like we could be going all across the Amazon, um, watershed by watershed, helping to training people the to yeah because this and and you could imagine a, a, like this utopian world where we had these floating boats that would harvest would process fruit and freeze it and mm. people would be taking care of the forest and um, earning you know a living wage. And for the first time it would be a product from the, the rainforest in the Amazon that the people that were living there would actually be profiting from right. not because not every other story of the Amazon rate. is, is just exploitation totally. from outsiders. Yeah. So, so it sounds like you need one person at least who could do, could <laughs> be the business mind and help rec- or at least recruit the right types of people to. Yeah. Yeah, and and maybe there will be somebody else later, you know? Yeah. Like, um, the other thing that we've learned so much, you know, you learn so much trying to get something like this off the ground, and you learn, like, even the simplest things um, have to be thought through. Like, for example, um, if you're organizing a group of people in a village to, you know, harvest palm fruits, and, you know, you've you've either rented them the gear or you've given them the gear... Um, and they have maybe figured out some kind of community organization. Well, um, you're going to, and you've organized like how much you're going to pay for the fruit that they're going to collect and when you're going to pick it up. Mm -hmm. And this has also got to be done in the context of, um, there has to be some law that says that they are allowed to sell wild forest products in this area uh, that may have some, um, Probably it's in an area that has, uh, I don't know, it's kind of the equivalent of, say, like a national forest or something, right? right? So that has to be done legally, right? Mm-hmm. And then you'd have to think about um, how do they pay taxes on the money that you pay them? Like, these are people who don't have a bank account, right? Right. <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, you know, the government, is if this was a, a functioning business, they're going to want to know, like... They want to see everything. They want to, everyone wants to to get a cut. Yeah, of course. (laughs) And it would be, you know, it probably would be illegal in some way to do a business where you, um, everything was cash under the table, tax free, right? So all of these things like have to be kind of thought through from like square one. And and I think that actually that's probably more the Italo and and Tarek and, and, you know, their, their talent is probably more, figuring out the logistics of how something like this would actually work rather than becoming like fruit, like magnates, right. you know? <laughs> nice. um, so I think it's, 
but you've been you're still actively pursuing it right and you have been for a few years now yeah this has started um boy this probably has been going on for i'm gonna say eight years wow awesome um and yeah i yeah i've been most mostly i've been a cheerleader you know um and helping out in small ways um but you have a background in biology yeah so this whole i mean the reason i've been was in iquitos in the first place was because i've been working there since about 1999 um and my friend Itilo started working with him in the year 2000 what were you doing back then um well my research is has always been about understanding tropical tree diversity so um just to give you a comparison here in california depending on what how you want want to define what a tree is um there's probably about 100 species of trees and in the united states and canada um there's probably about 600 species of trees okay and in the amazon there's probably around 16,000 species of trees and could be as many as 25,000 species. Some not yet discovered. Many, 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 many not yet discovered. That's Um, insane. And you can find 600 species of trees in the area, probably this, the block, the city block here. What? Yeah. They're that densely, like that diversity is that densely Yeah. So one hectare of uh, rainforest in the Amazon in the Western Amazon around Iquitos, um, that's a 100 meters by 100 meters. You'll have find um, about uh, three. You can have three to four hundred species of trees. That's so crazy. Yeah, that's nuts. So, so a couple hectares has more than all of the U.S. and Canada combined. Yes. Okay. Yes, yeah, so it's different. So I wanted to know why that was, you know, mm-hmm. and there's a lot, you know, how do you study a question that big? So mm-hmm. I tackled uh, one aspect of that question, which was when you find rainforests growing on very different soil types that are close to each other, um, which, you know, do you find that the trees are specialized onto one soil versus the other? And um, so is, does that happen? And if so, why? And what are the, what are the strategies that those trees have to live in different soils? And then part of that was also trying to understand how defending themselves against insects would influence which soil they lived in. And why that makes sense is because say one soil is much more nutrient poor than the other soil. So if you're a tree growing in really kind of a crappy soil, um, if you lose a leaf, it's a lot more difficult to replace it, right? Right. And um, so for that, those trees, those leaves are so, so much more valuable that they have to um, invest. Defend against yeah, exactly. leaf cutter ants and things like that. Yeah, so they just pack their leaves with, you know, toxic chemicals. Wow. Whereas a, le- a, a tree that's growing in really rich soil can um, can grow can faster. Spare a few. And they can spare a few leaves. Yeah. Um, so does the soil, the, the nutrient non-rich uh, soil... Mm-hmm. Uh, does that contribute to the toxic? Like, are there things in the soil that they can derive those toxins no. from, or they have to be generated within the plant itself? That's right. They're generated. Well, uh, although, no, so those soils are like, they're white sand soils. They're quartz. They have nothing in them, basically. Wow. They've been like, like rained on for hundreds of millions of years. <laughs> so nothing left. Yeah, it's just silica. And um, the, but 
so the plants have to generate their their own toxins inside their leaves. Although there are probably um, there are these things called endophytes, which are little little fungi that live inside of leaves. Oh, cool! And um, some have been known uh, shown to to produce uh, you know nasty chemicals. So they they help. They have help. They have yeah, little critters so, that that can benefit them. Yeah. And then are there other other species of insects that have changed accordingly? Like there's some that can thrive on those weird yeah types of leaves but not on the others and that's right so that's that's the the famous coevolutionary arms race of uh-huh. like where you know one insect um figures out how to eat this toxic chemical and then all of a sudden they have so much food that they can eat right right so, and then the plant has to come up with something better right so that's yeah. so cool. So did you learn a lot about insects and other things yeah, while you were I, studying soil? I, I did. Um, not s- like I, the stuff I've learned about insects is, is kind of from the plant's perspective. Right. So, um, but one of the projects I was doing recently is it's such a simple project, but it's been so fun. Um, basically just asking a very simple question, like what insects eat these plants and what chemicals do they have? So the only way to find that out was to just keep visiting these same plants for a long time and just watching them and then year we, after year. Well, we for, did it for a few years, but okay. um, we did it pretty intensively. So more than once a week, we would visit the same plants and wow. watch them. And then if they had an insect eating them, we would collect that insect and figure out what it was. Okay. And then we looked at the leaves of those plants and looked at the chemicals inside them and try to figure out how the chemicals and the insects were related. Nice. Yeah. And, and then what was, what was your ultimate thesis? Like what was it that you, well, wanted to show or, or did you, we wanted to know, um, we wanted to know, well, there's a couple different things we wanted to know, but I guess the, the reason that we started asking the question in the first place was, um, one was like how being really good at defending yourself. Well, what that meant, like, how was it like a couple, like really cool different chemicals or was it a mixture of chemicals or was it just having a lot of different ones? Mm -hmm. So what was the strategy that really worked? And then did that strategy end up making a certain species common and others rare? So was that a way that trees, you know, got to be evolutionarily successful, certain species, right? In the, there's so many different kinds, right? Some of them are, they're not all equally rare though. Some of them are really common and other many, many more are really rare. So we wanted to know like which ones, the common ones, do they, do they have something special about them? So that was one of the reasons. And then the other idea that we had was that if a tree had say a large geographic distribution and lived in many different places, it seems stood to reason that it might be attacked by different insects in different parts of its range. Right. And if that was the case, how would the chemistry, would the chemistry be different in different places? And, um, would it match the local insects? And would that be a, a way that two species could form out of say one, right? Oh, cool. If you imagine that it's a species with a wide range and it's being attacked on one side by beetles on the other side by, I'm making this too simple, but no, I get by it. caterpillars uh-huh. that over time, if, it, if the chemicals would, um, align to defend themselves against their local enemies that later if they tried to interbreed they would create a uh you know like a hybrid, hybrid that wouldn't wouldn't yeah. defend itself against anything wow and then that might be a way that you could get a formation of a new species so. did you determine a few cases like that or was that... <laughs> well it's still going on okay but the the big surprise that we got was the way we started studying this is we 
we did this really intensive project in Iquitos. And then we went to Manaus, Brazil, which is about 1,500 kilometers away. And there's about there were about 12 of these species that we were studying that live in both places. So we did the exact same thing. We just collected insects. We observed eating them okay. in, in Manaus. Well, we found the insects were completely different, like 100% different. Wow. Even though there's no mountains or anything between Iquitos and Manaus, it's just, but it's a long distance, you know, 1,500 kilometers. It's 1,000 miles. But um, they evolved from completely different local species over millennia. Well, right? the, the insects were, you know, they weren't like just, you know, really close relatives necessarily, but they were similar groups of insects, right? And there's similar um, guilds of beetles and um, things like aphids and um, mm-hmm. caterpillars. But they were completely different species. And then, but when we looked at the chemicals inside the leaves, we found they were exactly the same. Oh, <laughs> so that wasn't what we were expecting at all. Weird. Yeah, and um, and so if they were to somehow procreate together, they even from that. And they, I think that's evidence for me that they are. They are actually the these trees. Tree. You know, they probably um, are able to disperse their seeds and um, their, move their pollen, um, so that they do in some way like can exchange genes with even uh, across really great distances. That's amazing. Yeah. Did you do you know much about the way root systems work and how like do you know anything about the electrical communication between roots like in tree systems? Well, I know there's been I, I don't know too much about it. I, I know that there's been some a lot of things uh, in a more in the popular press, but kind of reporting um, that you know trees are communicating with one another. And um, I mean, I know that's true. Like there's these whole fungal webs of um, mycorrhizae that, that connect, you know, different tree individuals, but they're exchanging um, nutrients and uh, amongst themselves. And I had a friend who was studying um, how they did like adult trees were seem to be feeding uh, seedlings through these mycorrhizal nets. Yeah. From, from like a distance. Yeah. That's yeah. Cause like so it can cool. be, they can be connected for, I mean, really Miles long distances. Under, yeah. Right. Even redwoods, I don't know if you know, you know, redwoods are clonal, right? Uh-huh. Um, I always just thought, you know, you see a redwood that's chopped down and you see that fairy ring growing around it. Right. And I figured, okay, well, that's pretty cool. But it's not, there are not, not many uh, gymnosperms that are clonal like that. But I, what I didn't realize until I learned recently was that they also send runners under the ground and you can have a genetically the same individual redwood that could be, you know, a couple hundred yards away. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. And they also don't they don't redwoods have three ways of reproducing? There's, there's the through seed, through seed, and then can't they? I'm trying to remember what I somebody was trying to explain it to. They like within you could have a super long branch going out, and mm-hmm. there could actually be a, the spawn of a new tree from that branch. It's not a branch coming off of that, but it's like an actual. Yeah. But is that a seed or is that is no? That, it's vegetative. Like a, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's just kind of come. It's just like. Yeah, I'm going to grow here now. Yeah. A tree out of this tree. Isn't that crazy? It is. <laughs> and then the runners, I love the idea of that under the ground. Yeah. It's like we got to get to the sun and the water down that down that way. So there's got to be, I mean, it's a communication that we couldn't fully understand probably ever. But um, <laughs> you think? I mean, we can we can understand the science of it, but trees and plants and all living flora communicate 
Like they communicate. They do communicate. I mean, there's very, very clear examples of it. Like um, when a insect is chewing on a um, a leaf, it releases a you know um, these volatile chemicals, and other leaves from other trees can sense that, and they know that an insect is attacking somebody nearby, and they can start changing the chemical composition of their leaves to try to protect and, themselves. And they're not connected in any. No. visible way no it's just uh, they're they can sense those molecules know what's happening. yeah so they do communicate absolutely stories to tell from your adventures in the Amazon? Mm. Encounters with animals or with uh, unfriendly locals or friendly locals? Yeah, I mean most of the people have been pretty friendly that I've encountered. Um, There's been some adventures for sure. Um, It's been you know, it's such an interesting way to travel um, around uh, in, in, in the Peruvian Amazon because like I already said, you can't drive in many places. And so it's, it's all river transport. Mm-hmm. And so there are these standing routes where, you know, you want to go from one place to the other there, you know, you take a boat and the boats are, um, these big kind of passenger boats that, um, people, string hammocks in and sleep in and then there's any kind of cargo you can imagine on these boats Uh just 
you know, and the, the boat will go and it'll, you know, it takes a couple of days maybe to get to your destination. Could you list some of the cargo before you? Yeah. I want to tell you about the cargo. Okay. Like, like, you know, you're going on this boat and, um, and then somebody will just be signaling the boat. It could be, if it's during the day, they might be signaling with a, like a red piece of cloth or, but at night they'll be signaling with flashlights mm-hmm. and the captain will just stop every time somebody signals and anybody and it doesn't matter. And there's, he just pulls no, up. There's the no boat. like taxi stand or anything. No. Just, if you're on the riverbed and, and it'll signal. just be like this, the muddiest bank you've ever seen, uh-huh. you know, slippery, steep, yeah. uh, 50 feet high. And he, some guy will just like put a motorcycle on his back <laughs> and just walk down like this slippery, um, riverbank or or like six people will have a like a, a like an angry bull Holy that shit. they'll like be they'll like hog tie and, and, and wrestle it onto the boat and then it just is like tied up in the corner like are there are there cargo holds are there it, places no, it's just be where... like right on the front of the boat it'll just be tied up there <laughs> Holy shit! <laughs> and probably like furious and kicking and <laughs> yeah yeah but then he's so you know he's t- tied up i mean one time i remember this is not on a boat. It was when I, and we were in the mountains. Um, my very first, I guess it must've been 1999 when I was there with Joanna actually. Uh-huh. And we were just like, look, I was looking for places I might want to go study. And there was this national park and <laughs> we were trying to get to this place called Isco Sassin, um, in the central part of the Andes. And there was the only way to get there was just, just back of a truck, a pickup truck, like a Hilux, a Toyota okay. pickup truck. And, you know, that's not a very big pickup truck. It's like, it's a standard size, but not a huge one. Mm -hmm. And I think there were probably like in the, there's a cab and there's like a backseat cab. Right. So there are probably like 10 people in the first, in in there. Uh And then in the back, sitting in the back was Joanna and I and probably like, I don't know, 15 more. Holy shit. And we stopped somewhere and there was everyone's well got their cargo. And like one of the things that was funny was like a huge bag of like Cheetos. I don't, it wasn't like brand name Cheetos, but it was a huge bag of Cheetos. And somebody stopped and with a donkey and they actually put the donkey in the back of the truck with all the rest of us and the Cheetos. That's and insane. I just remember doing And you're just bumping, We're just bumping, bumping through like these the mountain whole, roads. Yeah, like on the, on the tail on the tailgate just like that's like, awesome yeah, the donkey's right in the middle and the people all the way around yeah that's insane <laughs> for how for how long oh like probably like six hours or something Holy like shit. that yeah that's yeah. so great yeah you you get accustomed to traveling in very very interesting ways um did you ever have to sleep out in the forest um, without anything without with well, like a hammock but no tent I mean, we, we sleep out in the forest all the time, but, um, the only time I've ever been caught at uh, one time I did get caught and this was, I was pretty young. I was in actually in Costa Rica in the rainforest there. I was helping somebody. I, I think he was doing like a butterfly project. I can't remember his name, but we were coming back to, um, the town and, but it was raining really hard mm-hmm. and the rivers were rising as we were walking. And, um, eventually we, we, you know, we crossed river and it was getting kind of sketchy and then uh, later in the afternoon it was just impossible there was would have been we couldn't really, hike anymore couldn't, we couldn't cross the river we would have been swept away mm-hmm. so we didn't have a tent or a sleeping bag or <laughs> so yeah we just kind of lashed some palms together and just kind of huddled together Damn, and, and for uh, the whole night yeah 
I mean, I remember he had like these menthol cigarettes for some reason. Uh-huh. I mean, I've never, I've never really You're liked never cigarettes, period. Um, but menthols always seem really especially disgusting. But are, I remember yeah. like, just like we were smoking menthol cigarettes. That's all you like, had. That's all that's you had. What, <laughs> that's all you had to do and all you had with you. That's awesome. Yeah. Any concern about cougars or anything? Well, Pumas? Um, yeah. There's there's definitely jaguars and and pumas in those forests mm-hmm. and um they and snakes there are snakes that's the biggest thing to worry about actually cuz they're poisonous snakes and lots of them right yeah um especially in central america but in the amazon they're they're around that you don't see them as much i don't i always wondered why that was um if they're more nocturnal or um well, they have some tree climbing snakes yeah there's some green green vipers so, yeah i've seen those a few one. times yeah they're super deadly yeah and then the, the one that has the common name, the Bushmaster, which That's I, right. I love, I love that. that. It just sounds scary. <laughs> it as hell. is. It's scary. It the master of the bush. Yeah. Um, I've seen those a few times. Really? Mm-hmm. Any close encounters? Uh, I, I got really close to a viper um, this last time uh, when I was in, in Colombia. I guess it was not my last time there, but two times ago. Um, and that was really scary. Um, and I did something that I never usually do, um, which is. I always go into the forest with rubber boots mm-hmm. and, um, but we were driving somewhere and we just kind of stopped along the side of the road. We were kind of taking a quick look at some trees and just kind of walked into the forest there. And I was looking around with binoculars and just wearing like tennis shoes or something. just wearing tennis shoes. Okay. And all of a sudden I hear this rustling, like, like really close to my feet. Shit. And, um, and then I kind of looked down and, it, and then I felt uh, something like sliding past my heel. Oh, yeah. And then I looked down, and it was a huge viper, and it was moving fast. And luckily, it just kept moving. Didn't strike, and didn't, it didn't, didn't strike. And I guess I must have stepped right over it. And oh, then it yeah. just kind of it decided it wanted to get out of there rather than bite me, That's, which uh, is very fortunate. It's as close as you ever want to. Oh yeah, actually feeling it like going against <laughs> my heel. It was like. That was one of those things where, yeah, I was like, I wouldn't mind a menthol cigarette right now. I was going to say, <laughs> uh, go hunker down in the bushes and smoke for the night. That's awesome. But I've never, um, yeah, I've never, I've never been bitten by a snake or. Yeah. Um, you ever seen a jaguar? No, I've never seen a jaguar. I've seen pumas. Really? Um, but aren't they, aren't they in the same? I thought jaguar and puma was two, two names for the same no puma the same as a mountain lion and you know cougar cougar. okay so we have puma puma is a crazy species it lives um from northern canada all the way down to the southern tip of south america and this is you know ostensibly the same species they look a little different they're a little slightly different in size um Mm -hmm. but and a jaguar is more like a leopard yeah so they're spotted and they're significantly larger but they're and they're black. They're black with black spots sometimes. Well, there are those. They have a, a black face. They're, that's pretty rare, though. They, usually, they're they're orange. What about what a black. panther? A panther is like a black panther. Yeah, that's a a rare um, jaguar, isn't it? No, it can be a puma. Yeah, oh, that is a puma. okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So you've seen pumas in the I've wild. I've seen a puma. Yeah, and that was an also kind of a crazy story at, in Costa Rica. And my friend and I were really late at night and we were just um, sitting on the beach mm-hmm. it was uh, there was no moon it was really dark and um we had just been sitting and talking quietly on the beach on a piece of driftwood and i think we were just sitting there we had kind of stopped talking and then all of a sudden both of us just kind of like 
felt something mm-hmm. and and my friend turned on his flashlight and in the moment he, he turned on his flashlight we both saw a puma like so like about the same distance as I am from you seriously and then like three it, feet four and feet? then and then at the same moment it was gone holy shit and if that if it had just been me I would have said oh, I just must have imagined something yeah but the fact that both of us imagined the same exact thing we we're like Hmm, what was that? Real. So then we got up and we got the flashlight and we started walking around and we sure enough, there was a set of Puma tracks walking down the beach and then it comes right to our log and then it vanishes. It was coming right up to eat one of you guys. I don't I guess. And it was could, that close? It was that close. And, Jesus um, Christ. And Silently. It, it jumped, jumped, must have jumped over us basically because the, the forest was right behind us and the tracks, we couldn't find where the tracks went after they went right by our log. And... um I mean, pumas are known to walk to beach in that part of the coast because, you know, they're looking for turtles or yeah. anything that washes up from the ocean. Right. Um, but yeah, they're so. total stealth hunters. Yeah. I mean, they get right up <laughs> on you before you know that they're there. It was weirdly not that scary. It was just really thrilling. Yeah. Um, and, and the vision was so, it was like a dream almost. But, I mean, yeah, it was a vision of a, of a cat, like as close as I am for me to get. That's amazing. Yeah. I had a similar encounter with a wolf once. Oh, really? Yeah. Where? Right, uh, right. It was outside of Glacier National Park. Yeah. Uh, on the, it was almost to Canada, but still on the U.S. side. Mm-hmm. And it was in the Blackfoot Indian Reservation that's just outside the park. And the park was completely full. There were no campsites left. And that's why I ended up staying over there. And um, the, it was beautiful, though. It was this totally... It was kind of a like rundown campsite. There wasn't, there's no facilities, no bathrooms, nothing. But it was on this beautiful lake facing the park. So they're just white capped mountains and this really pristine lake and then mm-hmm. a stone beach, like just little pebbles. So I'd had a fire on the beach with my then girlfriend. We hung out for hours. And um, at some point, she went to bed in the tent, which was just off the like little service road to get there. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to stay and look at stars, stay up and look, you know, so I was watching stars for hours. I was just standing there by myself in pitch black. There's nothing, there were no, there's no light pollution anywhere, which was mm-hmm. amazing. Yeah. And I could hear coyotes off in the distance and they were moving around and stuff. And at one point I, I kept seeing shooting stars and it was getting later and later. And I was like, well, one more shooting star and then I'll go to bed. And I was, le- I was leaning against our rental car, which was maybe 10 feet from the tent. And I saw one last shooting star and I turned around to head for the tent and I heard this sprinting animal, like a good size running fast through the grass right behind me. And I had a flashlight in my hand and I just, I turned it on and swung around and I was like, what the fuck? And, and it was right there. It was five feet away. Oh my gosh. And it, it froze stock still in the light. And, and then it gave me this sort of bluff, like a, like a bluff growl sort of bark. And, um, and I was just staring, I was just standing there staring, uh, you know, I didn't know I, it was the same thing. Like wasn't scary. It was just unbelievable. I'm yeah. Just sitting there yeah. Looking be at this. that close. Yeah. yeah. And it did it again. It did another little bluff and then it took off and it ran like 10 feet and then turned around again and faced me and did another little bluff thing and then ran off again. Hmm. And That's I was just cool. like shivering with excitement. And yeah. I, I went and got in the tent and told my girlfriend and she was pissed. She was pissed <laughs> that she had missed it. 
but she was uh, maybe someday was happy for me but i was just laying there like vibrating for the next two hours i couldn't wow. couldn't sleep i'm so super into it i've i love i've it's one of my favorite things about life is encountering an animal in their setting in their mm-hmm. world and not being an intruder but just being there with it and yeah i mean i guess in this case i was sort of an intruder but i've had a, i've had other things like that with bears and mm-hmm. sharks and you know alligators and it's cool it's pretty yeah. cool when you get up yeah. close and you're Absolutely. not you're not hunting them and they're not hunting you but you're just in each other's space I teach this class uh, um, every year. It's called the uh, Ecosystems of California, and, and it's 22 students. And um, every Friday we go somewhere. Like we leave at nine in the morning, and go to a, some park in the East Bay or in um, Marin County, generally. And then we go camping. Also, we go for nice. we go to Big Sur. We go to Sequoia National Park. We go. Um, up north, usually to close to the Oregon border. Oh, that's awesome. Um, and we go to Channel Islands. We go to Santa Cruz Island. Is it just, it's you and the students? Me or? and the students and... A and couple of chaperones? One grad student. Uh, so it's me, the, the grad student instructor, and 22 undergrads. Wow. And um, it's great because um, they many of the students have no experience with being outside or mm-hmm. like, and, and so the the function of the class is to in the beginning especially is just to learn how to identify trees and and shrubs so we learn 150 different species of trees and shrubs during the semester nice and it's really not much more about that than that in the beginning you know we're just you know i teach them how to do it and then 
we go on a long walk and I have like some pink tape and I mark, you know, about 20 plants and then they have to figure out what they are. That's so cool. Um, and they learn, you know, even though they never, some of them never had any experience and, 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 but the, the thing that is, um, so great is so magical is that they learn to be outside and they learn to get to know these plants. They like to get to be comfortable with kind of walking around and sleeping outside. And, um, and then they build a community, uh, amongst themselves and they really start taking care of each other. And, um, I make them all, everyone has to cook for everybody. Like that's part of the class too. Like I make them kind of, um, be cook. Everyone has to take turns and cook for the class. How um, long are these trips? Um, couple of them are three day weekends. So we leave like Friday morning and come back like, um, Monday Monday. Mm -hmm. and some of them are just weekend trips. So leave Friday morning, come back Sunday night. Okay. So like Um, six to eight meals or something. Yeah. But we don't do well lunch. I just make people bring their own lunches, but we'll do breakfast and dinners together. Okay. So they have to make like oatmeal or, um, you know, but a couple people do it for every, for For everybody. So everyone has to do that. Cool. And, um, and that, and, and that's given me like, you know, it just, I feel so fortunate to teach this class because, um, I just feel like, you know, I get to, in the beginning, they kind of don't know how to treat me because I'm like this professor fine, you know? Right. And, um, uh, but pretty quickly they could, you know, they could get to know me and they see my personality and then I'm just a human being like they are. And I yeah. don't try to put myself, um, you know, I'm, above them or anything. no i mean i do know more plants than they do right <laughs> but um by the yeah, end you know we're you know we're friends and um and i get to know a little bit about their lives and and so they talk to me about some of this stuff about um you know they can't really be connected online when they're when we're out and you know luckily even today, you know, you don't have a lot of service um, in yeah. a lot of these places we go. I mean, I, that's going to end Not, actually yeah. really soon. Yeah, five G is um, going to fix that. God, I hate that idea of like everywhere on the planet the you blanket. can't escape it. Yeah, it's really bad. Um, it's going to start showing up with cancer and stuff too. We're going to start seeing more. Yeah, incidents of illness. Right. Debbie Downer. I know. Uh, sorry, I'm going <laughs> right back to you. Anyway, but you they, were trying to tell they, a happy. Yeah, story. I'm trying to tell you something optimistic that they they don't. There's like nobody jonesing for their um, devices. and Even on the first day? Not really. Well, on the first day, maybe. But like, um, and, and it's funny is that they don't, usually there's, it's not like they know each other when like the first day of class. Mm-hmm. Generally, it's like maybe some people knew, had been in some classes with some people and there might be some friends that take the class together. Generally not though. Mm-hmm. And they just get so into like their little community. Um, and they're not you know it's not a it's it it just seems like they remind me so much of just you know what i remember like you know as a person that age mm-hmm. um, which just i feel like there is something universal about you know people being outside going camping together enjoying each other's company cooking together like um, and being able to construct that that friend those friendships those community those experiences of community um that even those, you know, those kids that you were just talking about who maybe are growing up in a, uh, a lonely way um, on devices a lot, uh, maybe most of their um, interactions are online. I, I know that those students, some of those students have taken my class and they, 
um, and they see a whole new world. And, and so it is, it is possible. It's recoverable. Definitely. And I think there is a hunger for those kinds of experiences, those kind of just, you know, getting to know nature and, and yeah. getting to know your, your place in the world. Yeah, I mean, I think it, you said it's universal, and I think it is as long yeah. as you allow it to be. Right, as but long if as you're success. if you never get that chance, and your your whole environment is your phone, mm-hmm. um, and a city or or whatever, um, you may never get a any, your only connection with the natural world might be seeing a video of a penguin, um, right. you know, trying to escape a shark or something like that. Yeah, and that's it. That's not that's, good enough. That's scary to me. Yeah, me too. But I. I think there are ways that we have to try to, you know, keep blowing that spark. Yeah. And uh, keep well, that fire going. Well, your class is definitely doing it. And uh, yeah, not tiny scale, but over, you know, I've taught it now, what, 12 times times 22. So that's like 202 well, and that, people. Well, <laughs> that is exponential because right. they carry it with them and, and then they they're going to do it. They can do it for others. That's yeah. right. And that's huge. That's yeah. actually a pretty big dent in the and and i think if i mean that's why i like talking about this stuff even though i often bring it to the shittiest possible (laughs) version of it's it's because i'm just so averse to it and i'm so i long so much for that other way because i've experienced it and i remember it and i love it and it's and it and it's enriching and and you know it generates life you know you really feel alive when you do that kind of stuff so by talking about it, I would like to talk more optimistically about it, but I like, you know, because I brought it up and you have this firsthand experience yeah, that gets people thinking about it again. And it, and it makes it just like, Oh, well maybe I'll lead a group into the, you know, maybe I'll do some adventure camp or I'll do something mm-hmm. for my kid. And maybe they're also going to tell somebody about it. And so I do think that's how it works. We start, we talk about it and yeah. get people motivated to, to try it. And any kid who's had this like one way of living that is is sort of like halfway alive, you know, and then experiences something like that, they're gonna their mind's gonna be blown. So the impact that it has is super valuable. It's really meaningful, and I think they are much more likely to carry that forward because of how much it changes them. Yeah. So I don't know. My hope is that. You know, every kid could have some somebody like you or some some exposure to some program like that. Yeah, I mean, we that, that's something that we all need to fight for. But I, like, if you think about when we were in in Burns Park, like, remember Mr. Browning would come and take us on the school bus and take us around different. You know, I think he took us to like Eber White Woods the, or whatever. The rock quarry. Yeah. I found um, the butter, butterfly brachiopod. Do you remember? <laughs> yeah. It was like the treasure that everybody wanted, wanted to find. I found one once. Good. Uh, That's great. Yeah, but the, those kinds of things are rare. Like they they almost don't exist in um, in most K through 12 education now. Right. Um, but it was just like taken for granted when we were kids. Like that, that kind of field trip, learning about natural history. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and because I took it for granted, I became a parent who thought, oh, well, that, of course, of mm-hmm. course they're going to do that in school. But I live in a city and things are different in that way already. And then there's the way the world has changed in the last 20 years that, you know, 
those things just got excised from the curriculum. They did. They got all about standards and tests and making the teacher accountable. Right. Yeah. So. Which is a bunch of BS. Well, also because of the, the legal, um, you know, all the people scared to bring kids anywhere for fear of them being injured or that's right. liabilities that's right. became a big issue. Mm-hmm. So all those things, the, the perfect storm to keep, you know, <laughs> keep humans from being alive, basically. Yeah. Like, hey, let's put you in these little safe boxes where you don't get to have the full experience. And it keeps getting narrower and narrower. So yeah, we have to break that shit up, I think. Yes. Let's do it. Do it. Let's smash it right now. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, maybe um, before I say anything else depressing, maybe we should wrap it up. Let's do it. Let's wrap okay. it up. It's. Uh, I think you probably got too much material. I got enough. I got a good amount. <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming. Yeah, man. no, thank it's you, Justin. Always thanks a pleasure. for having me on. Yeah. And uh, let's hang out again. Absolutely. Do something fun. Well, outside. Outside, yeah, for sure. <laughs> all right, man. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening, everyone. That was my dear friend, Paul. Uh, I want to thank him again for coming. And uh, I have a few more ideas for things you might do while stuck at home. Um, For one, I'd like to start a phone slash FaceTime campaign in which we all reach out to one another and make actual contact so that people aren't feeling super isolated and lonely. Um, So yeah, call your friends and family and maybe read a book or two or 10 or 50, um, depending on how quickly you read. Uh, Keep off of the news except for what's necessary and maybe chill out on social media. Um, Give some extra attention to your pets who have probably been longing for it since uh, we all stare at screens now instead of giving them love. If you don't have pets, uh, go take care of your plants and talk to them. Uh, If you have kids, be present with your kids. Help them out. They need to not be scared. And it's scary out there. Um, What else? Oh, you could listen to podcasts. There's an idea. There are 76 other episodes in my archive at outspokenpodcast.com as well as some uh, other bonus content and if you're so inclined I suppose you could listen to someone else's Uh, there are some good ones out there Um, there's a guy who needs no extra hype or exposure but he does have really great guests sometimes and that's Joe Rogan Uh, his episode number 1439 was with um Michael Osterholm, who's a, an epidemiologist and an expert in the, in the field of uh, infectious disease. So if you want to get some good, pertinent, and truthful information on this subject, check out that episode. And whether or not you listen to it, uh, maybe go check out the website for the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy 
That's SIDRAP, C-I-D-R-A-P dot U-M-N dot E-D-U. There's lots of good up-to-date information there as well. And what else? Um, be grateful for what you have. Uh, a lot of people are hurting and in need and don't have any kind of safety net. So um, try to take care of them and yourselves and your loved ones. And speaking of gratitude, I want to keep up my tradition of expressing gratitude here. Um, I'm grateful for my family, my lovely daughter, my cats, uh, the dogs that I take care of. I'm very grateful for the healthcare workers and Katie Porter and anyone else who's having a positive effect on policy these days. Um, clean water with which to wash my hands and to drink. I love you all. Please take good care and uh, be kind. See you next week. Bye.